But we're finishing up a character study of the prophet Elijah. We've been in this for about four weeks together, uh, just studying his life and what we can learn from that. One of my favorite characters in all of the Bible. Uh, enjoy the story of Elijah. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up. If you prefer technology, uh, you can pull up the Victory Harvest Church app. Got a fill-in-the-blank version of the notes there for you. Uh, if you're watching online, it's on the live page as well. You can click on notes. Uh, if you like fill-in-the-blank, you want every verse reference, it's all listed there for you. We can study God's Word together. But if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Kings chapter 19. And as you're turning there, just want to kind of set up today's message. Because this is going to seem like a very strange way to end a series here at Victory. Because here in part four, as we end a character study and we look at the life of Elijah and we kind of finish this up before we go into the summer season, we're going to talk about depression this morning. Come on, say amen. You're happy to be in church. And we're going to look at depression in the life of the prophet Elijah. In the way that this story kind of wraps up and right before the end of the story in the gospel in the Old Testament. But I just want to kind of look at this little chapter that sometimes gets skipped over, sometimes gets misinterpreted. But I think is going to help us quite a bit this morning. Because we're going to talk about the life of Elijah who just had one of the greatest victories on Mount Carmel. Remember, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the altar, everything. This incredible victory. And after he sees God work in this incredible way, Elijah hits one of the lowest points of his life. He goes through one of the lowest points that you will see the prophet or any prophet walk through in the middle of his life. So we'll pick it up in 1 Kings 19, start in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all of the prophets with the sword. If you remember, Ahab is the evil king, all right? Just to kind of recap, catch you back up. He's the evil king who's done more evil than anyone before him in the eyes of God. And he kind of sissies himself out at the end of his life, all right? He just becomes, he kind of like falls into a little shell and he decides, I don't want to do this anymore. And he really gives over control of the kingdom to his wife Jezebel, and who's more evil than he is. Come on, somebody. And so he hands it over to Jezebel and he's like, I don't want to do this anymore, Jezebel. You take care of it. So Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow... I do not make your life like that of one of them. She's talking about the dead false prophets that Elijah has just put to death. And so she sends to Elijah, basically she's saying, I'm going to kill you. You're going to be a dead man of God by tomorrow morning, right? If if I don't do this. And watch what happens next. Scripture, Elijah was, and say this with me, Elijah was afraid. And he ran for his life. Now you would be forgiven if you were completely befuddled by this verse. If you were reading through the story, and we've stepped through this now four weeks, that we've looked at the life of Elijah, we've looked at the things that God has done, you would be confused if you read this verse next in it. Because just to kind of recap, again, if you haven't been with us for the three weeks, Israel goes through this time where this evil king Ahab comes into power. And what he does that's so evil from everyone before him, more than any of them, he leads the children of Israel astray to worship false gods. The god of Baal and the gods of Asher. And he begins to lead them astray, he and Jezebel, his wife, And so God, out of nowhere, raises up this prophet Elijah to confront the king. And so he goes to the king, kind of has this this showdown, this face-off. And he says, king, it's not going to rain in the land. Because you've done this, the punishment, it won't rain in the land until I pray and God sends rain. And so there's this drought. Sure enough, it doesn't rain. And in the midst of that, there's this drought. So the king looks to kill Elijah. So immediately God takes Elijah into a time of isolation. He begins to prepare him. He begins to take him to the Kareth Ravine where he begins to prepare Elijah and, and make him learn dependence upon God and provides for him. And so you see this miracle God does where he answers the prayer of Elijah. It doesn't rain. 
And then Elijah takes him into this time of protection. And then he begins to provide for him. Birds begin to bring Elijah food. Meat, praise God in heaven, red meat and water, right? He drinks from the brook. And the birds begin to feed him each day. And so Elijah sees this miraculous provision. This incredible, it could not happen without God moment that he has in the Kareth Ravine. And then after a while, it says the brook dries up and God sends him again to another village. And he meets a widow there who doesn't have enough food even to feed herself. She has a little bit of oil and a little bit of flour. And so God uses Elijah to miraculously provide where the oil doesn't run out, the flour doesn't run out. And she feeds not only Elijah herself, but also her son. And so for weeks they eat off of this same little bit of oil, little bit of flour, miraculous provision that God does in the life of Elijah. And then all of a sudden the story takes a turn and the son of the widow passes away. He dies unexpectedly. And so Elijah takes this boy up into the top room of the house and he begins to cry out to God. And the first time in recorded scripture we see that God raises the dead and he raises this boy back to life. And he presents him to them all. And Elijah sees this miraculous provision again. And he's going, God is good. God is faithful. God is powerful. He sees these incredible things happen. And then after a season of hiding, God brings Elijah back out. And he has a showdown. Faces down the king. Says, call out the prophets to Mount Carmel. We're going to have a good old-fashioned showdown. And so all the false prophets meet him on Mount Carmel. All the children of Israel are there. And Elijah declares, how long are you going to waver between Baal and the real God? How long are you going to waver between two opinions? He said, let the God who answers by fire. He's the true God. And so the children of Israel say, okay, that's fine. And so the prophets prepare their altar, the false prophets. And they dance around it and they cut themselves and they sing and dance. And they do it from morning until evening and nothing happens. No fire, no nothing, right? Nothing occurs on the altar. Nothing happens. And so about that time, about the evening, Elijah starts to trash talk, right? We learned that in week two. Elijah starts to talk. So every time you hear me say that I've been trash talking, you know, it's very, very spiritual. All right, everybody? It's a very spiritual thing to do. If I ever play sports with you, just know that that is a spiritual thing to happen. That's just what it is. But Elijah starts to ask them, maybe your God is in the bathroom. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's like asleep. Maybe he's deaf. He can't hear you. And Elijah starts just poke fun at these guys and still nothing happens and so then it's Elijah's turn he steps forward he prays a prayer and God sends fire from heaven and it consumes the altar consumes the sacrifice consumes the water it consumes everything there and the children of Israel do like we might do and they're like oh yeah we missed it right God is the real God that's the real one and then Elijah's okay catch the false prophets and put them to death and so they do that they catch them on the mountain that day and revival breaks out and it's this incredible victory for Elijah and then, it's not, that's not even the end of it. Then he goes to the top of the mountain, we learned last week, and he begins to pray. And he prays, and he prays, and seven times he prays for rain. And his servant comes back the seven times like, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand over there in the distance. And by faith, Elijah believes that it's the storm coming. And sure enough, because you've, you've read this story now, sure enough, the rains come, the sky grows dark, the clouds open up, and rain falls. It's this incredible miracle that God does in the midst of this miraculous provision, miraculous protection, preparation, miraculous God. Elijah has seen God move in ways that are so incredible every step of his life over and over and over the faithfulness of God. And then one day he gets a note from the queen that says, I'm going to kill you. And Elijah freaks out. What he should have said is, hey, lady, I'm a prophet in a nation that doesn't like God. I get a lot of hate mail. You can get in line. All right. This is just that's what he should have said. But he doesn't. Elijah panics. He freaks out. It says he was afraid and he runs for his life. 
And so today, I want to talk to you a little bit about depression. And I want to just kind of outline, as we start this sermon, if you're taking notes today, I want to show you the four easy steps to depression. All right, everybody? Come on. You're glad you came to victory this morning. I want to show you four easy steps out of the life of Elijah. We find this in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 3. Watch what Scripture says. It says, when he came to Beersheba, so he's on the run, in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. It's an interesting part of the story. Again, this thing, don't, you're forgiven if you think this story has taken a turn you didn't expect after the victories we've seen Elijah win. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And he lay down under the bush, out in the middle of the desert. And he fell asleep. How do you get depressed in four easy steps? Well, if you're studying the life of Elijah, if you're studying the life of Elijah, number one, you do what Elijah did and you wear yourself out. You completely and totally, to the end of the extreme, you wear yourself out. If you notice over the past few years, over these past few years as we've studied the life of Elijah, if you'll notice, he goes through this cycle of battle and faith and then praying and then seeing God move and then battle and then faith and then battle and then another confrontation and then battle and then faith and praying. You see him through this cycle every time a battle and a faith and then you have this massive showdown. Like talk about pressure. He is the only one on his side, 850 prophets on the other. Elijah's the only one and if fire does not come down from heaven, his life is over. You understand that in the middle of that, that that is life on the line type of pressure. Like think if you prayed, you get one shot at a prayer. If God does not answer, if there is not fire from heaven to consume the altar, your life is over. And so you have this stress, this pressure of that moment. And then God answers this incredible mountaintop moment where God answers by fire. And then he prays and rain comes from heaven. You see these miracles happening in the life of Elijah. And then one of the most incredible miracles, we're just going to read this out of 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, that I just want you guys to see because I love this miracle so much. After he prays, he sees the cloud. He tells Ahab, hey, you better get off the mountain before the rain comes. Watch what happens. The sky grows black. The wind rose. A heavy rain starts falling. And Ahab hitches up his chariot. All right, that's his car. He gets his horses together. He gets in his chariot. He takes off for Jezreel to go tell Jezebel what has happened. And watch what happens. Elijah, right, tucking his cloak, because the prophets wore dresses back then. I don't know if you know that, right? He tucks his cloak into his belt so it's not flapping everywhere. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on that guy, and Elijah outruns the horses. Elijah, can you imagine if you were going to lunch today, and you look out the window and see me going by at like 40 miles an hour, right? Like just just running, you know, on the way to Freddy's, just down the road. Just come on. If you just saw me like, because the Spirit of the Lord has to come on me to run fast, because I am slow, everybody. I don't know if you know that. I do not like to run, and so I've just been praying that the Spirit of the Lord would hit me and make me run fast, but it just hasn't happened yet. So here he is, though. Elijah's running. The power of the Lord comes on him. He runs, outruns the horses, so he's tired. And all of us would be after seeing these incredible things happen, these spiritual battles that he's gone through. And so he's tired and thinking, I want you to notice the devil comes to attack us when we're tired, when we're overspent, when we've exhausted ourselves. And it's not always when you think. Because Elijah has seen not the greatest defeats of his life. To this point, Elijah has seen the greatest victories of his entire life. And it's right after this final victory, this when he's praying and the rains come from heaven, this incredible victory after this is when the devil comes, when he's at his most tired point. It's when the devil attacks. Not when he's in his defeat and at his lowest. It's when he's at this eye, but he's tired himself out. And not only has he gone through all of this, but now you watch, he travels. And this is the furthest he can go south. He goes as far as he can. And then he leaves his servant. He goes another day alone in the desert until he is completely spent. 
He's as far as he can get, as far as he can go. He's completely exhausted, not just the spiritual side, but now the physical. He's exhausted himself beyond everything he can do. And he's vulnerable because he's tired, like many of us. I can't tell you how many people that I talk through throughout the week or people who call me and just say, hey, I'm going through this or going through that. How many of us, we spend ourselves as much as we possibly can. And whether we see a victory in the spirit, we're seeing all these incredible things happen. We're doing all that and we don't recognize the toll that we've taken on ourselves. We've overspent ourselves. And we're as tired as we, it's when the enemy comes to attack, whether you're on a victory or a defeat, when you are tired is when you are vulnerable. When you're at the most vulnerable. And so he's physically tired. And some of you, you're asking, well, why am I depressed? Why am I feeling the way that I am? Some of you parents, you've kind of gone all out. You're working a full-time job. You're carting kids all over the place. You're involved at school, involved at church. You're doing all these things, putting food on the table. You're doing everything that needs to be done. And you've completely spent yourself. Some of you students, you're coming off a semester where you took 20-some hours and you're involved in your fraternity and you're playing a sport and you're involved in the clubs and you're doing all these things and you don't realize how exhausted you have actually made yourself. And in those times of exhaustion is when you are vulnerable. It's when the devil comes in to try to whisper in your ear. For some of you, it's not a physical exertion, it's all up here. It's this idea of, well, I've got to provide and I've got to come through and I've got to be strong and I've got to always put on the right face and I've got to be involved in that. And it's this, this constant turning of the gears and you have completely worn yourself out. You put yourself too far, too much exertion. You've gone the furthest south you can go and then you keep walking a day into the desert. You've done this. For some of you, it's all up here in the thoughts. And you've worn yourself completely. You're totally exhausted. So step number one is to wear yourself out. Step number two is to shut people out. You want the easy steps to depression, you do what Elijah did and you shut people out. And that's exactly what he abandons his closest friend in the city down at the south. He says, you stay here. I'm going to keep on going. You stay here. The one friend he has in the world, the one he sent to see if the cloud was there, the one who supported him, climbed to the top of the mountain with him. All of this, he leaves him in the city and he travels out in the desert. And quite honestly, it's what a lot of us do when we get overwhelmed. Like, I'm not going to let you in anymore. I was great relating to other people when we were on the mountaintop, when we had the experience, when we were winning victories and doing things. But now in this moment, I'm not going to let you, because even if I let you in, you wouldn't understand what I'm going through anyway. And we keep people at arm's distance. And I don't know if you've seen that in someone that you love in their life, or you've seen that in your own response. But so often when we're in this spiral of depression, or we're in this spiral of this downtime or this vulnerability time, we begin to push people away. We say, well, I can't even let you in my life because I don't think you would even know what I'm going through. You wouldn't even understand what I'm going through. We stiff arm people. We push people away. We shut them out. Step number three, then, is we begin to buy into the lie. So we've isolated ourselves. We've worn ourselves completely out. So now we are alone and exhausted. And then we begin to buy into a lie. And a lot of times the lie is different specifically for each person that you begin to buy into. But most of the time, in general, it's the same idea. This same lie that people begin to believe. And watch this in Elijah. He begins to buy into it. He does this several times, but this is the first one. As he comes under the broom tree, watch this in 1 Kings. He begins to cry. I fell asleep. And he began to cry out, Lord, I don't want to live anymore. This is enough. I'm I'm done. Just, Just take me now. And then the little phrase he says in there, I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm no better than my ancestors, which is funny because nobody was asking him if he was. Nobody, but that's just what Elijah began. But he begins to buy into lies. And this is just the front domino of the lies he buys into. We'll see that in just a moment. 
But he begins to buy into the lie. There's no way out of this. There's no other way for me to survive. There's no other thing for me to do. There's nothing left for me. And I promise you, the devil will try to whisper in your ear. When you're tired, when you're isolated, try to whisper in your ear at your most vulnerable, these lies that then we begin to buy into. These lies that begin to say, well, you're, you're no better than anybody else. And, you know, the world would just be better if you weren't around anymore. The absolute lie that he tries to whisper into your ear. And too often, if we're on this spiral, too often, if we're in a place of depression, we begin to buy into it. That you can't make a difference anymore. That you don't have a ministry anymore. That there's nothing left for you to do. That there's no other thing. You're not useful. And we buy into those lies and all of a sudden, what do we do? We start disconnecting. We start disconnecting from others. We start disconnecting from the world. We start pulling back. We begin to say, well, you know, that might be true. Maybe my family doesn't love me. Or maybe my church, you know, they just don't want me anymore because maybe, you know, maybe I've seen the way they look at me and they just, you know, if they knew what was going on inside of me, they wouldn't want me to show up anymore. So I'll just do them a favor. And before they even find out, I'll just go ahead and stop coming. We begin to say, well, if that, that friend of mine, they probably would appreciate it if I didn't come around anymore. If they, if they just knew, and we tell ourselves, my friends don't need me, my, my kids don't need me, my spouse doesn't need me. And some of us have gone all the way to the extreme and believed the absolute lie that the world would be a better place without us. And I'm telling you right now, it's a lie of the enemy to get you isolated when you're vulnerable. It's a lie of the enemy to try to destroy you. It's an absolute lie. The world needed Elijah and your family and the world needs you. Just want you to know that right now it is a lie. And so many of us have caught ourselves in this spiral where you start to buy into that lie. You start to think those thoughts and believe them. And it's the enemy whispering in your ear to try to take you out. That God still has purpose for you. That God still has something for you. But I promise you, if you want four steps to depression, you start to buy into that lie. It's right there. You start to wear yourself out. You shut people out. You begin to buy into the lie. Then step number four is you forget God. And you've seen this, probably if you've ever watched somebody who's gone through it or you've experienced it yourself, you've seen this cycle, but you begin to forget God, which exactly what so many of us do. And imagine this, all we saw God do in the life of Elijah, we spent four weeks now studying his life. All the miracles that we've seen God do, all the things that God has come through, all the provision, all the protection, all of these incredible things that we've seen God do in the life of Elijah, and yet he forgets that. Yet in the midst of that, he begins to cry out, oh God, I don't think that you can happen. I don't think that you can make this happen. I've seen you raise the dead, God, and I've seen you bring provision, and I've seen you set fire from heaven, and I've seen you do all of these incredible things. Answer prayers, speak to me, Lord, but I don't think, I, Lord, I don't think you can protect me this time. And I wonder how often some of us do that. I wonder how often, even in my own life, that I've seen God move. I've seen him answer. I've seen provision. I've seen God in the midst of different things. Be there. Be the peace in a situation. I've seen him work in people's lives. I've seen him do so many incredible things. But in the midst of depression, in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our low moments, in the midst of that, somehow we forget those things. We, we put those in the past and we say, well, there's no way God could come through this time. And we forget the faithfulness of God. We forget the faithfulness. You wear yourself out. You shut people out. You buy into the lies and you forget God. It's the quickest way. We learn it from the life of Elijah. The quickest way that he gets depressed. But this morning, I want to talk about the answer to this. Because I want to look at this story because this is not the end of the chapter. All right. We're only about five, six verses in. I want to look at God's answer to Elijah. I want to look at how God begins to answer the man of God as he's out in the desert. 
Is he at this lowest point? He's gone from the highest of the mountain now to the lowest in the desert. He's crying out. He's at this low point. And then finally he says, Lord, take my life. And he falls asleep in the middle of the desert. No food, no water, no nothing. He's done. And I want to look at how God answers him. Because I think a lot of you are here today. A lot of you watching online. I think that you're here because God wants to speak a word to you. I think some of you are in the midst of this. Maybe one or two of these things are sticking out today. starting to, to stir inside of you. But I believe God has a word for you. That he wants to speak to you through the story of Elijah. And maybe you're just a little bit blue. Maybe you're in full-blown depression. But I believe that God has an answer and a word for you today. Maybe you're in a place of hopelessness. Maybe you're in a place where you feel like nothing could ever be made right again. Maybe you're in a place where you believe those lies we went over. But I want you to know that God is not through with you. That God has incredible things for you. That God is speaking to you. And I want you to notice this answer God gives to Elijah in his place of depression. And first off, we're going to start this part of the story with looking at what God does not do to Elijah. Because I think this is going to help a whole lot of us who relate or who are in lives with other people who may be going through something like this. Watch what God doesn't do. God sends an angel. And watch what God does not say through this angel. There's no sermon. There's no ah moment, right? There's no thing. There's no rebuke. There's no some, some great blinding thing where God comes down and points his finger and shouts at Elijah and rebukes him in the desert. There's none of that. The angel's not saying, oh, Elijah, if you only had more faith. If, Elijah, if you would just memorize more Bible verses and you just quote them. Elijah, I, just, I know if you would just smile more, Elijah, and quit being a baby. If you would just, if you just put a smile on your face, Elijah, everything would... That's not what God does. Come on, that's going to speak to somebody today. That's not with no rebuke, nothing negative. The very first thing the angel of the Lord says, if you're taking notes, he says, eat and rest. Eat and rest, Elijah. The angel comes and finds him there in the desert. He finds him there hiding under the tree asleep, ready for his life to end. And he says, eat and rest. Look at verse five. All at once the angel touches him. And he said, get up and eat. And then watching verse 6, he goes on. He says, he looked around and there by his head was some bread and baked bread over the hot coals and a jar of water. I love that God answers with food. Come on, somebody. I just love that part because I love food. And so this just, just confirms in my mind that God is from South Louisiana. This is just the, the, you know, the proof right here for everybody. Was some bread, bread baked over hot coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank and watched. And then he lay down again to sleep. You parents of teenagers, that's your kid every day of the summer, right? They just eat and go back to sleep. But watch this. He comes to him. He says, eat and rest, Elijah. Here's some food provided and here's some water. And he's gonna, we're going to strengthen you a little bit. We'll see in just a moment. And then he says, and then Elijah lays back down and he rests again. I was listening to a pastor speak to a pastoral seminar. Uh, and it was more on the idea of, of leading a church last year, just through some of the challenges and some of the things. But something he said that stuck out to me that I think applies to everybody. And he said this. He said, you have to be hyper aware. You have to be incredibly aware and vigilant to see when you're in the early stages of a burnout. He said, in your own life, you have to be aware when you may be in the early stages. And I think that speaks to a whole lot of us. Now, our response when we hear something like that is, well, I don't care if I'm in the early stages of a burnout. I got stuff to do. Like, I don't care. That, that sounds really nice. But I got stuff to do for God. And I got stuff to do for my family and stuff to do for my business. So I don't care what reality is. I got things that need to be accomplished. But then he said, the thing that most stuck out to me because in this pastoral type thing, the idea we're having is I got stuff to do for God. I got spiritual things to accomplish. And the thing that he said then next was, I know what you're all thinking. I know that you think you have things. But then he said, the most spiritual thing you could probably do right now is rest. And I just want to say that to you guys. For a whole lot of you, 
A whole lot of you with long checklists and to do things and ministries and all these things that you're thinking about and things you have. The most spiritual thing, the most spiritual thing you could probably do is rest. When you've overextended yourself and you find yourself like Elijah hiding under a broom tree in the desert thinking this whole thing is over. The most spiritual thing you could do, the most spiritual thing you could do is not start another ministry, not try to answer every email in the inbox, not try to do everything for everyone, every single moment of the day. The most spiritual thing for a whole lot of you you can do is to rest. It's just to rest. And I think this is one of the most disobeyed commandments out of Scripture that the Bible talks about, one of the most disobeyed in our culture, in this modern day culture. Because the Bible says, honor the Sabbath, commit it to the Lord. Honor the Sabbath, have that time of rest. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift of God to our lives. And yet we disobey and we pass it right by like it's nothing. Like, well, that's just something I'll get to, you know, if I do. We don't do that with the other commandments. We don't say, well, you know, do not murder. That's something I'll get to later on. And we don't do that with the other commandments. But with the Sabbath, we think, well, that's just something, that's just an idea. And maybe Jesus said it's a gift to us that God has given to us. Some of you, the most spiritual thing you can do is to have a rest. Is to begin to rest because you've put yourself out so far that you say, well, and I know what you're saying because I would say it in my life. It's what I say as well. But I have to do this. And I have to do this, and I've got to do that, and I have to do this, and I've got to do that. But I promise you, if you boil down to the essentials, it's a much shorter list than whatever it is you have worked up in your brain. And I believe God may be saying to some of you, it's okay if the text doesn't get answered until the next morning. It's okay if the inbox stays unanswered until a few days. It's okay if some things don't happen. It's okay if the kids have some slightly dirty clothes that they're wearing, everybody. It's okay if the house isn't as clean as you think it really needs to be. It's okay if the lawn stays unmowed for another week. It's okay if some of these things go undone. The most spiritual thing you need to do is rest. That some of you have spent yourselves to the very last moment of it and you're wondering, why do I feel down? Why do I feel so? It's because you haven't rested. You haven't rested. You haven't done the most spiritual thing. So the angel of the Lord provides food, lets him take a nap, read on his scripture. Here's the first thing. He comes back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat. And watch this, for the journey is too much for you. The journey. And so he got up, he ate and drank and strengthened by that food. Strengthened by this, strengthened by this moment, strengthened by this. Now he can do what God has called him to do. He had to have this moment. If the angel had come, Elijah, get up, you know, kind of come on, Elijah, keep on moving. Come on, Elijah, we got somewhere for you to go. Come on, Elijah, keep on going. Come on, keep on, keep on moving, keep on moving. Elijah would have died in that desert. But strengthened, it says, by that food, he travels now. Watch this 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. And scholars believe that's the same mountain where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And so again, watch what the angel did not do. He didn't say, Elijah, get up, eat, and rest. And when you're ready, Jezebel is that way. That's not what the angel did. The angel comes, all right, Elijah, kind of rest a little bit. And when you're ready, I'm going to send you right back to where the burnout happened. I'm going to send you right back into it. Because listen to me, times of rest are not us kind of getting back, recharging, and then throwing ourselves back into what caused the burnout in the first place. That's not what a time of rest is. Times of rest are not for us to just go back into our unhealthy cycle of overextending ourselves in every moment. That's not with this time of rest. What he does, he eats, he rests, and then he sends him to the mountain of God. He sends him where he's going to go speak with God. And for so many of you in these times of rest, you need to begin to get back to the place where you experience the presence of God. Where you experience his presence of God. Whether that's in a church service, whether that's in your quiet place at home, whether that's driving out just singing worship. Wherever it is, you need to get back into that cycle. He sends him to the mountain of God. It says 40 days and 40 nights, Elijah 
travels to get to the mountain of God. It says eat and rest. The first thing he does. Second thing, if you're taking notes, is this. Is then when you meet with God, when you have these moments, as God begins to replace our lies with his truth. That's why it's important that you eat and rest. It's important that you pull back from that. But then it's so important, this next step, that you begin to experience the presence of God so that he can replace your lies with his truth. Because we talked about this. When you begin to buy into the lie when you're vulnerable. When you begin to buy into these total lies in your life. And this is going to speak to some of you. God begins to replace Elijah's lies with truth. Watch this in verse 9. So he goes into a cave when he arrives at the mountain of the Lord and spent the night. And the Lord and the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, let's pause for a moment and understand the fact that God knows what Elijah is doing there. All right. God's not doing some investigative work here. This isn't like he's trying to figure out, like, I thought you were here, Elijah, and now you're over. This isn't that. What God is wanting to do is ask, and God does this. He asks this question all throughout Scripture because he's wanting to hear the response of Elijah. And in this scenario, he wants to hear the lies that Elijah has bought into so that he can begin to replace them with his truth. Because he already knows what he's going to tell Elijah, but he wants Elijah to verbalize this so he can point out which parts of these things Elijah's been believing is the lie. What parts of the things that brought Elijah all the way? He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he replies, he says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I want to go back to verse 9 here, because God is listening to him say this. And God is waiting to replace his lies with the truth. Because watch this. I have been very zealous. Go back, I'm sorry, to the next verse. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. True. He has been. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. True. They've torn down your altars. True. And put your prophets to death with the sword. True. And I am the only one left. False. And so I can just imagine God listening to Elijah go on and on. It's true. 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 And then he comes to this. The reason why he's out here alone in the desert, the reason he's asking for his life to end, the reason he feels so isolated, he said, I am the only one left. False. I am the only one who can do this in Israel. False. I am the only one that God could possibly work through to make his kingdom come. False. So I'm the only one that could bring revival to the Israelites. False. I'm the only one, oh Lord. I'm the only. He's done what God has asked him to do. And now he's trying to shoulder more responsibility than is his. He's had God work through him. He's seen victories and miracles. And now he's trying to shoulder more responsibility than God has for him. You read in the next chapters, not only are there other people following after God, there are other prophets on the same level of Elijah that are working at this same moment. But he finds himself alone in a cave, ready to take his own life based on bad information. Based on this idea that he feels, I am completely alone. He's already forgotten the showdown with the prophets. He's forgotten about the revival that just happened. He's already forgotten all of these things. He's trying to take more responsibility than is his. Remember, we get isolated. We get into these crazy thought patterns. We begin to do, and Elijah's out in the desert, ready to take his own life based on a lie. Based on a lie. I'm the only one that serves God. I'm the only one that could possibly do this. I'm the only one left, oh Lord, that even loves you. I'm the only one in my whole company, Lord, that even follows after God. I'm the only one in my neighborhood, Lord. The rest of them are just, they're just drunks headed to hell. I alone, oh Lord. And the only person, and we begin to do these things. We begin to say, I'm the only one, Lord, in my entire school. I'm the only one in my entire state. I'm the only one, Lord, who could possibly do this for you. I'm the only one. And he's buying into the lie. Well, if you read on in the story, God actually tells him, Elijah, I've got 7,000 that I've reserved for myself. 
7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal even once. 7,000 that I've reserved that haven't kissed the idols. 7,000 that are mine. You're actually not alone, Elijah. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies. You're not the only one. And I can only imagine what God would say to some of us. If we were to verbalize, we were to say some of these lies that we're believing in. And so many of us, if we were to say those things, I can only imagine how God would say to us, that's true, this is true, that's true, and then that's false. And we get to that lie that we bought into and you say, that's false. Because some of us, if we were to verbalize it, we think it in our minds, but then if we were to verbalize it before God, we would realize how false of a lie it was. We begin to say, well, my marriage could never be healed. Why not? With anything, with God, anything is possible. Why not? My, my kids could never come back to the Lord. They could never be saved. Well, God says if faith the size of a mustard seed, the mountain could be removed into the thing. With our God, anything is possible. Why not? Well, we say, well, I always be alone. And God would say, well, there's seven thousand. There's people around you that want to be your friend. There are people who want to care for you. You know why we do small groups the way that we do? It's not that you have another Bible study. It's not that you can play some sports together. It's because we have leaders in our church who want to support you, who want to come around you, who want to love you. There are people who want to be in relationship with you. And so when you believe this lie that I'll always be alone, it's a lie of the devil to get you isolated. That God's people want to surround you with love, that there are people who care for you. And I want you to know that when you buy into the lie, you give up on all of that. And God is saying today, that is a lie from the pit of hell, that you are not alone. You are not alone. There are people who love you. There are people who care for you. There are people who want to come around you and lift you up. But too often we begin to buy into the lie. Too often in our lives, we begin to buy into that lie. We begin to say, well, I'll always be alone. And there'll always, I'll never find a real relationship. And I'll always, and we begin to just do it. And I'll always be stuck in a dead end job. And I'll always, I will never have a real ministry. And I'll never have these things. And we begin to buy into those. And if we would just verbalize it, we would see how much of a lie it is. That if we would go to God with our prayers. And scripture says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. It doesn't matter the lie you bought into. It matters what Jesus says about you. It matters what he did for you on the cross. So we need to begin to replace these lies with the truth. Some of you need to ask yourself the question that God asked Elijah. What are you doing here? And I don't mean physically here this morning or wherever you are watching online. I mean the choices and decisions that we've made in our lives that have led us to this moment. That led us into believing those lies. What are you doing here? If you begin to verbalize those, if you begin to say those things, that God begins to replace those lies with the truth. There's a Holy Spirit who can comfort you. There are people of God who want to come around you and encourage you. There are people waiting, waiting to love you. And you need to begin to replace those lies with the truth. The third thing that God does, and this is so meaningful to me, and I hope it is for you as well, is that God speaks in a still, small voice. That he speaks in his still. Now you have to remember who Elijah is used to dealing with, right? Because now we've studied this for a little while. You are experts in the story of Elijah. Remember who he is used to dealing with. The God who answers by fire. The God who shakes the ground. The God, right, who raises the dead. The God who makes the rains pour from the heavens. This is the God that he's used to dealing with. And so as he goes to the mountain of God to meet with God, you can imagine what he expects. He probably either expects a rebuke or he expects the God of the earth shattering, ground breaking, that God to show up. And he's expecting that as he goes to the mountain. But watch what the Bible says. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Remember who Elijah has dealt with. And now he's gone out in the desert, asked to die. And now the angel has sent him to the mountain of God. 
And now the voice of the Lord comes to him and says, go out because the presence of the Lord is about to pass by. You can just imagine what Elijah is expecting. Whether good or bad, whether rebuke or punishment, or he's expecting some, some new thing, whatever he's expecting, you can imagine how he's expecting the presence of the Lord to be. Because he knows the story of Moses. He knows what God's presence, he knows this is about to be. And so watch what happens. He goes out and a great and powerful wind, watch this, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earth. The ground begins to shake. The wind is tearing pieces of the mountain off of the mountain. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. Remember, this is Elijah, the fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, and read this with me, a gentle whisper. After the fire, after the earthquake, after the wind came a gentle whisper. Sometimes when we are at our lowest, God speaks the softest. And I don't know if you've experienced that in your life. Chances are you have. But when we are at our lowest point, God speaks the softest. And it may not be much and it may not be loud, but I promise you it is always enough. And listen to me, our God is a God of power. Our God is a God of great signs and wonders. He can shake the heavens. He can send fire to consume the altar. He can shatter the grounds. He can send the wind to tear pieces of the mountain. Our God is a God of signs and wonders and great power. Our God is incredibly power. Isaiah 40 verse 10 says that our God with his powerful arm rends the nation. That our God with his powerful arm rules all the incredible power of our God. But verse 11 goes on to say, That with that same arm, our God, the shepherd, gathers the lambs close to his heart. And I love that. about Our God is a God of signs and wonders. Our God is a God of power, but he's also a God of compassion. He's also a God of tenderness and gentleness. And in both of those, you see this in our God. That up to this point, who has Elijah experienced the God of fire and earthquakes and dead rays? All these incredible signs and wonders. But in this moment, when Elijah's at the lowest point of his life, God speaks in a gentle whisper. That our God carries the lambs close to his heart, the scripture says. And some of you have struggled to be open with God because all you've ever seen is the God of signs and wonders and power. And you feel like if I open up to God in prayer and I let him know about the depression or the anxiety that I'm walking through, that all I'm going to get is the God of the wind and the earthquake and the fire, that all I'm going to get is a rebuke or all I'm going to get is this God of great wonders and power and signs from heaven. But I want you to know that our God is a God of compassion. And that if you're broken and you're weak, he carries the broken and the weak close to his heart. That he is the God of great signs, but he's also the God of the gentle whisper. And in Elijah's lowest moment, God comes to him in a still, small voice that he speaks to him. I'm telling you, the same God that can send fire from heaven, the same God that can shake the earth. The same God can deal gently and tenderly with those who are broken and carry the weakest close to himself. You've got to be open with him in these times of prayer. You've got to be able to open up to him that you don't push God away. That he's able to do that. And so Elijah, in this moment, the gentle whisper, not the booming sign that God is capable of, that God has done before in his life, not any of that. And here's what I take so much comfort in today. I don't take any confidence that you get anything from my words. That's not what Sundays are about. I don't take any confidence that you would somehow gain some great revelation because of something that I say. But I know that in moments like this, that in moments of worship, that in times that we have together, that through studying the word of God, that through these words and around them and through in the middle of this, in the presence of God, that God can and will speak to you. 
That you might have that moment where you hear the still, small voice of God. That you're in His presence and you can hear Him speak to you. The gentle whisper. That you'd have Him speak to you through His Word. Begin to speak to your life. Begin to heal you with the words that He speaks. That you would hear the gentle, still voice of the Master. That He's saying, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'm more than enough. It's a gentle, still, small voice of God. So sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to rest. Sometimes it's just to rest. It's just to lay. Other times you have to capture those lies and replace them with truth. And then you listen and you may hear God speak in that gentle voice. And the fourth thing is we close that God does with Elijah. And I think this is beautiful. Number four is God gives us purpose. He gives us something to do. He gives us something to do. Look in verse 15 and 16. Watch this. He says, go back the way you came. So he's speaking to Elijah now. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. Watch this. In other words, go back, Elijah, to doing what prophets do. He's gone through this progression with him. He's spoken to him in the gentle whisper. He's done all this, but now he's at this place where he's giving him renewed purpose. He says, go back, Elijah, and do what prophets do. Go back and do what they do. And he's saying, there's something, I believe the Spirit of the Lord is saying to some of you today, go back and do, there's something still for God to do. There's something still for the kingdom for you to accomplish. There's something God is still calling you to do. Because too many of you, you've lost your confidence. You're hopeless like Elijah. You've lost sight of what that thing is. You lost sight of the calling. A lot of you have lost sight of what God can do through your life. And you begin to think, I I can't ever do anything else for God. All my best days are behind me. All my things, I'm hopeless. I'm wandering. I did all those things for God in the past, but now I'm in the cave and I've lost it all. I'm hopeless in my moment. And God is saying, go back and do what prophets do. Because I want you to know, I don't care how old or how young you are, God is not done with your life. God still has things for you to do, still has things for you to accomplish. Go back and do what prophets do. And you say, well, I'm not a prophet. Then what are you? If you're a parent, go back and do what parents do. If you're a business person, go back and do what business people do. If you're a person of prayer, go back and do what people of prayer do. If you're a person who serves, go back and serve somebody. A person who gives, go back and give something. Whatever it is that you are, go back and do what prophets do. And watch how God brings life back out of you. Watch how God begins to breathe new life into those things. God begins to use you to do those things. Renewed sense of purpose. That God has things for you to do and I promise you, I don't care who you are, I don't care what the path of your life looks like. God still has something for you to do. God still has purpose for your life. Amen, somebody. That's a good, that's good preaching right there. God wants to do something through you. God wants to do something through you and in you. And check this out. God gives him a gift here at the end. God gives him this gift of somebody who believes in him. God begins to pour into Elijah's life. And watch who he sends, this third person he sends him to. He begins to come. And this man, Elijah, Elisha. So Elijah, the man of God. And now Elisha comes alongside of him as as his helper. It says he assists him in everything. And so together they do what prophets do. They begin to go around the land and do. And the younger one, Elisha, looks at him. And he's later on in their relationship. And he begins to say, Elijah, I want a double portion of what you have. I want to do twice as much as what you've done. I want to, and Elijah looks at him and he's like, okay, the only way that will happen is if you're with me when I'm taken up. If you're with me when I leave this earth, if you're, if you're there with me, then that's the only way this thing is going to happen. It's going to do. Now think about this. What did Elijah fear the most? 
We're studying him now for four weeks. What was Elijah the most afraid of? What's the only thing that made him run? What's the thing he's most afraid of? It's death. You remember Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. Ah, Elijah runs off in the desert. He's afraid of death. And I want you to notice in this story, in the life of Elijah, this is just something interesting to notice. In the life of Elijah, his greatest fear of all, death, was something that he never experienced. Only One of only two people in scriptures that's recorded that never died. That God sends a chariot and takes him up into heaven and he doesn't experience death. One of only two people. The thing he was most afraid of, he never experienced. And now I want to speak to two sets of people today. Some of you, and this is some of you. Some of you, your greatest fear, your greatest what if, the thing that rattles around in your brain all the time, the the greatest fear that you have, some of you, it may never, ever even happen. And you've let it it handcuff your life. You've let it stop you from doing what God has called you to do. And it may never, ever even happen that God would just raise you above it. And now others of you, I don't want to have a message to say, well, everything's going to be okay. and Nothing's ever going to happen. That's bad. I'll quote Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. But then you finish that verse, but take heart because I've overcome the world. For some of you, your what if might happen. But I promise you, even in the midst of that what if, even if your greatest fear ever came to pass, that he would be with you in the midst of it, that he's overcome it already, that he's already and he will walk with you through the very center of that. Even if your what if happens, I promise you, he's more than enough to be with you. He's more than enough to walk with you in the midst of it. And I find so much comfort in reading the story of Elijah, this man of God, this man of great faith that was on the top of the mountain and then was in the bottom, was in the lowest of the lows, the highest of the highs, the lowest of the lows. I take comfort in reading how God prepared him, how God worked through him. And then even in the midst of his depression, even in his darkest moment, how God brought him through. Because I promise you, God is always always enough would you bow your heads with me as we pray today God we ask you in this moment that your spirit would speak to us God we ask you that you would be more than what we need that you father would speak to us in those moments that if we are in those God those dark low moments of life that in your tenderness God and in your gentleness father and in your compassion You would speak to us. You would lift us up and hold us close to your heart. God, I pray right now for those who are here, those watching online, those, Father, who find themselves, who find themselves, Father, in that spiral of depression. And Lord, they put on the face for everybody else. And they paint on the smile for everybody else, but inside they are dying, Lord. And I pray right now, be the God who speaks in the gentle whisper. Be the God of compassion, Lord. Who takes them as they are, Father, and holds them close to your heart, Lord. We ask you right now, heal them. Bring peace. Be the strength that only you can be, Lord. pray it right now. And Lord, I pray for all of us, God, that you would give us the courage to be obedient to the command to rest. That we've overextended ourselves, Lord, that we pushed ourselves too far, that we would rest. 
And Lord, I ask that in those moments, in those times, that we would experience your presence. And Lord, we begin to replace the lies with your truth. That we would begin to know that we're not alone. That you do care for us, that others do love us, that we are in the place you have for us, Lord. And we ask you, then give us renewed sense of purpose. Show us what you have for our lives, that you do love us, that you do care for us, and that you do still have things for us to do. You still have things for us, Lord. God, I pray that you would just speak to us. As you continue to pray today, every head bowed, every eye closed. Some of you are here today and you say, I'm in that low point. I'm at the, the lowest I can get. I've hit rock bottom. And I would just say to you today, praise the Lord, because there's nowhere else to look but up. And I truly believe sometimes in our lives, God lets us hit bottom to know that we cannot do life without him. So if that's you today. I just want to pray with you. Some of you say, I, I'm on top of the world. I've, I've made the money. I've got the house. I've got the relationship. You're like Elijah on top of Mount Karma. Everything has gone right. And you say, I have everything I ever thought would make me happy. And I've realized I'm not happy. You say, why is that? Why, why am I still stuck in that moment? I want you to know it's because nothing in this earth can satisfy. Nothing that you can accumulate, nothing that you can purchase, nothing that you can try to achieve on this earth, nothing will satisfy the only thing. The only thing that can bring true satisfaction is a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't care who you are. You can try as hard as you want to. You can make as much money as you want to. You can do all of that. You can be on the top of the world. And I promise you, it will not satisfy your life. The only thing. You say, well, who is Jesus to me? Jesus is the son of God, lived a perfect life and then died as a sacrifice for your sin and for mine. Shed his blood on the cross. Died and then rose again. So that anyone can call on the name of Jesus and be saved. Gave his life as a sacrifice for you and for me. That anyone, I don't care what your past history is. I don't care what your walk of life is. I don't care what you left outside when you walked in this building. I promise you anyone can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. So if that's you today, it would be my honor to pray with you. You say, I need that. I want to submit my life to Jesus. It starts with a prayer of submission. And I can give you the words to the prayer. The church can pray it alongside. But you have to say these words and you have to mean them in your heart. Only you can submit your control of your life to him. But I promise you it's the best decision you'll ever make. It's the first step back. So that's you today. If God is drawing your heart, if you feel that, you know something is happening. I want you to know God is drawing you, that he loves you. And he wants you. He wants to give you renewed purpose. He wants to pour himself into your life. He wants the Holy Spirit to come alongside, inside of you, to lead you, to guide you. He wants that to happen, but it starts with a prayer of surrender. And so if that's you today, we're going to pray this prayer. Church, pray it with them. Nobody prays alone. You're watching online. You're in the room. Say these words. Say, Jesus, forgive me. I repent of all of my sins, of all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross and I believe you rose from the dead. Now say these words, I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen 
Amen. Now, church, can we celebrate with those who prayed that prayer?